Hello, and welcome to Mean Street News as we join Karen and Katie to discuss hard truths in Ohio politics today. We want to empower you with the knowledge you need to become informed citizens ready to engage Ohio politics in your community and beyond. It's time to mean what you say and say what you mean. Here on Mean Street News, we practice the transparency we seek. Good morning and hello. I'm here with Katie and we have a special guest with us today, Representative Dick Stein, who's currently serving his fourth term as state representative. He represents the 54th Ohio House District, which includes most of Lorraine County, Northern Huron County, and Eastern Erie County. A native of Norwalk, Representative Stein is a graduate of Norwalk St. Paul High School and earned a professional master's in craftsman degree from the Professional Photographers of America. For the past 40 years, Representative Stein has owned and operated Stein Photography, a successful local business that has provided him with a keen understanding of the challenges many businesses face. Representative Stein sits on the aviation and aerospace, energy and resources, infrastructure, and public utilities in this 135th General Assembly. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining us, Representative Stein. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to a conversation. And uh, this is a topic that, as you're well aware, has been uh, been uh, being been going across the whole state and trying to figure out how we um, navigate through these uh, tumultuous times and figure out what the pathway forward and more importantly, how we assure that it doesn't happen again in the future. Yes, I really appreciated um, your conversation when I uh, went to Lorraine County. Unfortunately, Katie had an accident and was unable to be there. We're glad she's okay. Yes, um, but I loved personally how, what you said in Huron. My friend went there and sent me a recording um, with you and DJ when this first happened. And I was just like, we have to have him on, wasn't I, Karen? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that um, many people across the state don't understand it. And I, I just think that you spoke into the issue so eloquently. And so we just want to discuss today, you know, that fracture in the Ohio House uh, caucus. And, you know, let's discuss that a little bit further. I know many people are debating, was there an official Republican House caucus vote for speaker? Uh, sure. Maybe what would be helpful is to maybe give a little bit of a chronological timeline of, of what happened and also what is traditional. Uh, typically after a fall election in November, the caucus, uh, the dean of the caucus would call a, a committee meeting, basically a the group of Republicans, to determine who we'd like to support for Speaker of the Ohio House. It's typically done every two years. And uh, in the last cycle, that happened to be with Representative Cup. And this cycle, there were three uh, opponents, actually four, a fourth one dropped out prior to the votes. And so, yes, there was a, a week or 10 days after the election, we had a caucus called, a meeting called amongst the 60, we thought at that time 68, since then one was removed because then it was a close call and, and it ended up, uh, they were, were not actually elected. And so we had 67 members that we currently have. But in the first round of voting, uh, it's a secret ballot. Everybody's given a slip of paper and you simply write the name of who you would like to support for speaker. Now, the backstory on that is all summer long for the past, for the prior year, we've had those three and actually four out campaigning, visiting with each of us, trying to solicit their support for speaker, which is the right thing to do to let, to let us know what their policies are, what their priorities are, and whether those uh, 
priorities align with ours. In the end, on the day of the vote, uh, it was Representative Plummer, Representative Marin, and Representative uh, Stevens, who were the three that we we're gonna be voting on. In the first round of voting, uh, Representative Plummer came out short. He had 19 votes. I don't remember the count specifically for the other two, but he was the uh, least votes vote getter. And as a result, he was uh, removed from the list. And then immediately following that, a second vote took place. And in that vote, uh, Representative Marin came out ahead by a few votes. And again, you know, I'm not sure, I don't recall, it was like 35 to something. Uh, we didn't have every member there that day, if I recall correctly. Uh, we were short maybe one or two. But it came out to several votes ahead for Rep. Marin. Someone in the crowd, I don't remember who in the caucus, uh, asked for unanimous consent. Everybody stood, clapped, and, and offered their support, which is typical so that we had the unity and, and no, no, we know that going into uh, session in January for swearing in day and for that vote that we'd have a, a block that was gonna support uh, Derek. In the weeks that followed, Derek uh, worked diligently to try and, and uh, put his cabinet together, to put his leadership policy team together, to set up committees, committee assignments. And through all of that lost, uh, you know, his, his father passed away uh, shortly about a week before, so he had a lot on his plate. But ultimately, uh, Derek was speaker-elect. He was given, uh, at that point, the authority to start looking and look at, look at policy people. People were hired from around the country and around the state, from other agencies, to fill policy positions on his team. And uh, ultimately, some of those folks lost their job simply because um, on January 3rd, uh, the caucus did not keep their promise, did not keep their vote. And uh, ultimately, by 22 of our uh, fellow Republicans siding with the Democrats, they elected Jason Stevens instead of uh, Derek, who who had been we assume we assume the uh, the speaker based on that vote we took in early November. Well, our next question would be then: Did did you or any of uh... Not you, but did any of the dissenting 22 express their disapproval during the vote? Like, I'm not for this. We're going to go against this or anything or was nothing. Well, and, and that's a great question. And the answer is, is emphatically no. There was not, to my knowledge, I was quite relieved as a, fact, as a matter of fact, that as a result of that vote and the unanimous consent agreement and everybody standing and clapping uh, you know, in, in support of Derek, that, uh, that, hey, this is going to go smoothly and, and everything will, will go in an orderly fashion moving forward. So there was no understanding during that vote that there was any um, rumblings or discontent among the Stevens camp or the Plummer camp, the other two that had lost out during this process. Now, I will say that subsequently, literally within hours of that vote, there was folks coming to me and others that were saying, hey, are you hearing that uh, this isn't over yet, that there is a group on the Stevens camp that's out actively trying to solicit uh, a vote to, to uh, basically take away the authority of our caucus as a whole and uh, take that seat on January 3rd during the actual election on the House floor? And so I shared that with Derek and others did also that literally within hours, we knew that there was this undertow going on. No one would admit it. If you would ask any of the 22, you know, we're hearing stories or rumors that there are people out there, uh, uh, you know, trying to take this uh, rightful 
uh, leadership role from Derek away from him. Uh, oh, they said it was a conspiracy theory and there's no truth to it. And, and so, uh, again, a lot of uh, you know, integrity issues across the board in that sense. But uh, uh, certainly, you know, January 3rd uh, bore out the fact that those were not rumors and they were substantiated by exactly what happened with the 22. In addition to that, if you read through some of the uh, press releases, uh, uh, the ranking member Russo had made comment that she was in conversations with with Rep. Stevens literally prior to the vote in November. So he had actively pursued Democratic support, not even knowing whether he needed their support uh, prior to the November election by our caucus. So, so this was not something as many would try to uh, intimidate or implement, implement that, that they wanted to try and uh, change the vote because of issues they had specifically in dealings with Rep. Marin. This was more about the idea that uh, they they just didn't want to lose and they were going to do everything in their power to change change the score, so to speak. And that's exactly what they did. And in the end, it was more about, you know, how do we justify our position by saying, well, this person, you know, I might not get a good committee assignment or I was promised this or I was promised that and I'm going to lose that possibility. I would have to say of the 22, there's probably a core dozen people that were really the the real instigators of making this happen. I think there were more than a few people that ended up maybe getting hoodwinked in the end and told things that may or may not have been true that changed their mind and, and allowed them to support the 22 or what ultimately became the 22. But I don't believe all 22 were on board till literally the day of the vote and some of those not till literally hours before the vote. Yeah, I, I find it interesting because I had never really... Uh, considered, you know, when you do an, a, an election of a speaker for, you know, the Senate or the House, that they would then need staff to help them hit the ground running. And so that was really an interesting point that you brought to my attention that I had never even considered before. You know, he well, would, he would need that true. help. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I equate it on a smaller scale to somewhat similar to a presidential election. You know, you have a, an election in November and you have a, a, a declared winner by a popular vote, but it's not until you have the Electoral College confirm that at a later date. But immediately, once that popular vote is, has been established as there and there's a clear winner, we move forward and they're given resources and funding and staff and they actually start working towards who's going to fill their cabinet and run all of their different agencies and offices and put together a plan so that when they're sworn in in January, they're ready to hit the ground running. Derek Marin and, and typically most speakers would do the same thing. After, they're, after they are duly elected or become speaker elect, their job is to put a, put a staff in place, to put their, their staff around them that's gonna support them so that uh, when they start in January, that they're ready to hit the ground running. And particularly, I will say to, um, in, in, a, in relation to Derek is, he did something that I haven't seen done in my four terms or in the three prior terms, and that is he did have a plan in place. So January 4th, he intended to announce committees, uh, what those committees would look like, what new committees would be added, what committees might be combined or removed, who would chair those committees, who would be on those committees as committee assignments. He had put a schedule in place for all of our sessions, for all of our caucuses um, with the goal that one of his primary goals of being to pass what had been in the last GA House Joint Resolution 6, which was the Constitutional Protection Amendment, 
In the end, uh, which now is HR1, HCR1, uh, that was his goal because that had to be done by early February. And in order for him to make that happen, and that was a promise that many of us on the side of the 45 wanted to see uh, happen, is for that vote to take place and allow that to be put on the spring uh, the spring ballot, uh, we needed to, to get started earlier than normal to make that happen. And he put everything in place to, to make sure that would happen, knowing that it was a high priority of our caucus. So what is interesting to me is that, so let's go back and talk about the um, Constitutional Protection Act, which what we're, what we're hearing and what we're understanding as the public is that that was the major difference between the two legislative packages of Stevens versus Marin. And listen, we've been to a couple events. We've heard, you know, certain representatives say, hey, there were communication problems. And Oh, it's a boys know, club issue. Remember that one? That was good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, that that there were communication issues and there were things that were, you know, kind of happening prior to the death of, you know, Marin's father, which, you know, what an unfortunate and untimely thing when you're trying, you know, probably the most important thing in your entire career, right, to work through and get together. So I'm sure that there may have been, you know, some communication glitches between what was happening in his personal life, but I mean, what we're hearing, understanding, Let's right? What we're hearing from you is he still managed to do something that you hadn't seen in your previous tenure in the House. That that is absolutely correct. He he worked very diligently. I met with him a couple of times along the way on my interests in terms of uh, my leadership role in in the House. I had I've been very active in energy policy and wanted to be involved in that role. So we had some discussions on that. Uh, and, but again, Derek had done everything possible to make sure that we could be successful, uh, assuming that it was the membership's choice. In the end, we have to have 60 votes in order to get that Constitutional Protection Act on the ballot. And uh, he was going to make sure that he gave us that opportunity to take that vote uh, through his diligence and making sure, even with the travails with his family and his dad, uh, to make sure that that was going to be uh, an option that we were going to have on the table prior to the, I believe it was like February 2nd, if I recall correctly, was the date we had to have that signed by in order to get it on the spring, the May ballot. So again, uh, he did everything right. Yes, there were uh, probably communication um, issues that, that some will say are part of their rationale. And my answer to that is, uh, in the future, and, and really, in retrospect, of course, you know, 2020 thinking in the past of what happened, but <laughs> what, should, what should have happened is, you know, if there were concerns and if it was truly about finding answers and dealing with any particular issues with, uh, Rep, or with, uh, with Derek, it should have been handled by having a special caucus, air any grievances they were having, and have an open discussion moving forward from that point in time. But I don't think that was ever the intent in the first place. When you have news reports from the other side, from Allison Russo saying that, that she met with Jason Stevens prior to the November election on soliciting support from Stevens, uh, from the Democrats, then how do you make the claim that this is all about communication and policy issues? You can't. And I mean, you really can't. And and like Karen probably has heard as well as I have heard during that time, that little break in between the vote, we heard rumblings that Marin wasn't going to make it as speaker. So they that just shows somebody knew 
somebody was pre-planned, you know what I mean? Without saying sure. it, I mean, something sure. was going on. Right. And, and again, there, there, there could be a lot of things that I think moving forward, I, one of my goals, of course, again, I'm in my fourth term, so I won't be involved in the next election cycle process. But as I speak with freshmen and other members who, who will return to this situation in two more years, it's, it's a couple of things. One is I'd love to see each of the members sign a pledge that says that whatever the caucus vote is, that I will abide by that and do it in writing. So there's no wiggle room. There's no chance for somebody to you know, weasel out of it. Uh, like so I'd that. love to see that as number one. And, and beyond that, I wouldn't be opposed to the idea of some type of a inner internal caucus question and answer debate period where, again, if we have three candidates and one drops out, then let's have a conversation. Let's spend the next hour quizzing them, asking questions of their priorities, asking them, did you go to the Democrats and solicit support from them for votes on the other side? Uh, let's air all that so that when you do take a vote, you know going in what that person represents and who they are, rather than the way it was. It worked this time where it was just a quick vote one after the other. And, and obviously Derek had made arrangements with plumbers uh, group to bring some of them into leadership, which which is, I think, what brought Derek over the top was some of the plumber support that's enough of the plum plumber support swung his way mm -hmm. to end up winning the day. And, you know, Stevens Camp had that same opportunity to do that, but did not. And, of course, then the Stevens Camp complaint is that, well, you didn't bring on our people to your to your caucus leadership. And and so, but at that point, knowing, as you mentioned, the rumblings that were going on and the dissent that was that was that was kind of sway. It, it was bubbling in the background. You know, why would you bring in on anybody from the from the Stevens camp when you don't know who to trust and you don't even know that you can believe anything they're saying anyway, knowing that there's this undertow out there to try and pull you out of office? Exactly. Yeah. Well, and that's the thought, like, would it have made a difference, I think, for many of you had they just had that conversation and been transparent and said, hey, you know, we're struggling with this for X, Y reasons. You you know, you're saying from what, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, if that had been, you know, something that your colleagues had come to you and discussed, you know, maybe something could have been arranged to have mm -hmm. an open and honest discussion about it. Yeah. Right. Ab ab absolutely. I, again, I don't know whether it would have changed the outcome. I don't know if, if they did a revote, if that was something that everybody agreed that we should have another vote of confidence to confirm this. Uh, I, again, I, my belief is, number one, if that would have been offered, uh, knowing that the Stevens camp had their agenda and had already been working with the Democrats, how do you, how do you come back into caucus and say, yeah, we've got the support of the Democrats, and how do you, how do you maintain... <laughs> A majority of 45 that are going to still support you at that point, I would think it would fall apart on its face. You don't really know until you get into the vote on January 3rd what the Democrats are truly going to do. Right. I mean, you don't know if they're pulling up, if they're bluffing or if they're really going to support him or who they're going to support. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know that would have changed anything. I think they had in their mind, they had a pathway. They had multiple pathways. They were going to be successful. And this was, you know, maybe not. In, in their mind, certainly not the most advantageous pathway, but but I don't think they cared. It was about power, it was about having leadership and having control. And in the end, that's what this is about. This isn't about you know the communication issues or somebody feeling dissed that they didn't get the right office or they didn't get the right role <laughs> in in our committees. And 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 I will I will say this, and this was something that really shocked me because again, 
I like DJ as a person. I think, you know, yeah, I think he made a mistake. All of us make mistakes. We're all human. In the end, uh, when he made comment that he did this for our district because he felt that he would not have a leadership role or a role to play that was appropriate for him in our district to be able to advocate on issues that are important to our district. I mean, on the surface, that sounds good, but I brought that question up to, to Rep. Marin uh, after that conversation from our last Central Committee meeting, and, and the comment made to me was quite surprising, and that was within a week after Derek had been elected by our caucus, he reached out to uh, Rep. Swearingen with an offer saying, would you consider being the finance chair of the Ohio House? And, and now, you have to remember, in our committee, he made comment that he was he was concerned he wouldn't get an appropriate role to uh, advocate on behalf of Ohio. Well, I'm not sure if most of your listeners understand this, but chairman of finance committee, other than being speaker themselves, is probably the most important role in our government, dealing yeah. with a $78 billion budget and how that's going to be parsed out over the next two years is about as active a role as you can possibly get. So you have Derek Marin telling me in person that he offered that possibility to um, DJ, and DJ's response was, well, you'll have to talk to Jason about that. Interesting. Oh, I, my gosh. I feel so, and, and that seemed a very unique response. It's like, why do you need to ask Jason about you being given a role that would put you in the most powerful seat in the Ohio legislature, uh, well, and, and again, in, in fairness, they are good friends. They, they own a property together. Uh, and, but that shouldn't be the issue here. This, no. is, this, is, this is about right and wrong and integrity, and this should not be about this issue at all. But unfortunately, that did not help my case of trust and belief in, in the comments that uh, Rep. Swearingen was offering. Now, I like DJ, and DJ is my next turn. I'm in Vermilion, so we're split between Lorraine County and Erie sure. County. So that's his territory. But I think that's really interesting that he, he that's what he's been saying around every meeting. It's it's based on, you know, his district. But House Finance Committee, he's not the House Finance Com uh, Chair now, is he? He's no, uh, he was, again, and, and I could have this, I'm not positive. I, he, I believe he was given a, a, a leadership role that he then was willing to abdicate because of the fact that in the end, uh, Speaker Stevens decided that he wanted to bring on as a, I guess, a show of unity. He brought on uh, Rep Ray and Rep Hoops into his leadership team as the um, majority whip and assistant majority whip. And I don't know for sure if DJ was one of those and, and offered to give that up in order to allow that seat to be made available to uh, one of uh, Derek's folks are not. I do know that that while he may not have an official role, he is very much of an insider and involved with almost all negotiation that uh, the speaker is is currently engaged in. Okay. Now, Ray, is that the lady that we saw at McFan, Karen? Yes. Okay. Yes, Representative Ray. And she's a, a, Karen a Ray. whip, right? Minority yes, whip? Minority yes, whip. she's a minority or majority whip. Majority, majority whip. whip. Majority whip. Right. So majority, let's back... assist, I believe she's the assistant majority whip. Yes. And Rep Hoops is the majority whip. So, I, I mean, bottom line is the two divide the, the caucus vote in half, and each each then would call or, or solicit, you know, yeas and nays for specific legislation so that the speaker has some idea of 
whether a bill has the possibility of passing or not. Okay. So let's back up to the uh, Constitutional Protection Act and let's talk about that sure. for a second. Because, you know, in the last week we've heard of Patton being censured out of Cuyahoga County and his main argument was like, hey, but Stevens is, um, you know, endorsed by Ohio Right to Life. However, we're, we're hearing that the difference between these two legislative packages, the major difference, um, because we heard they were mostly the same from uh, Representative Sharon Ray and, um, you know, which would have set the voter approval threshold for a state constitutional amendment from 60 percent compared to the current 50 plus one vote. So can you can you I know you discussed it before, but I, I really like you to discuss it again, because I don't really believe people understand the nuance of that. No, sure. This this what was House Joint Resolution 6 under our current uh, GA, this, this term is now House Joint Resolution 1, was reintroduced, has had several hearings, and the, the one primary issue you've already brought up was the 60% threshold rather than 50% threshold for the public voting to change our Constitution. But there are two other important nuances in this bill. Uh, one is that currently you only have to collect signatures, and I believe it's 10% of the total from the last gubernatorial election, which is in the 400 to 450,000 range. Uh, currently, you only have to collect those from half of our 88 counties. And so if you're looking to, uh, you know, to expedite or, or lower your cost for uh, going out to collect those signatures, you're certainly going to use the the major counties, and particularly if the agenda is more of a left-leaning agenda, uh, you're going to you're going to try to hit those places that are going to get you the most votes the quickest, and avoid the counties where that may not be the case. Well, under this new House Joint Resolution One, it also mentions includes that you have to have all 88 counties participating in the collection of signatures, which will be fairer in that if you're going to ask all the citizens of the state of Ohio in all of these counties that didn't even maybe have somebody come through and ask for a signature, then shouldn't you at least make everybody available and have pr proportional buy-in from all 88 counties? So that was one important change. It would make it a little more difficult uh, to collect those petitions for outsiders. So when you have outside influence from other states who are basically buying influence in our constitution, it will be more expensive. But, you know, if it's a grassroots, truly a grassroots issue in the state of Ohio, then you should have buy-in from all 88 states. So that's one change in addition to the 60%. The second change is, is what's called curing. Typically, once the group that's uh, collecting these petitions turns those over to the Secretary of State, they're going to go through and verify that, indeed, you have 400-plus thousand voting signatures on your petitions. And in many cases, they'll be short, 5, 10, 15,000, depending, uh, because they were, maybe they're not a registered voter, maybe they're moved out of state, maybe whatever the case might be. So uh, they will, the curing period gives them, I believe it's 10 days to go out and collect additional signatures to try and make up the deficit so they can still get it on the ballot. And some people will say, well, what's wrong with that? Uh, well, I guess my comment there is when we go out and we go and run for office, any of us, in any whether it's statewide office from governor down to you know local government, and you're required to go out and get signatures, if you're one short, you're not going to be on the ballot that cycle. 
There's no gimme. There's no cure period. There's no, you know, that's a good try. Go out and do it again and come back tomorrow. Maybe you can get it tomorrow. No, when you lose, you lose. That's the end of it. Well, why are we giving on something as important as changing our constitution, this so-called cure period to go out and make uh, changes and collect more signatures in order to try and get our agenda on the ballot for the voters. If you're going to go out and do this, then do it like the rest of us have to do it. Go out, get your signatures and call it done. If you win, you win. If you don't, well, you should have got more signatures. That's your call. Exactly. Exactly. I love that answer. I do. So I did, two differences. Yes. I did really want to ask you though, is how do you perceive this will help or hinder the house working together on legislation with this fracture um, of the Republican caucus. And I do want to add something just because I, I do deal with Lorraine County. Um, I am the chair of the Young Republicans. I've seen, what do you think the ripple effect is from this within the party? Because I know there's a huge ripple effect going on. Uh, so I guess it depends on, on in what sense. Do you mean on, on legislation like the House Joint Resolution? Do you mean on future elections? Do you mean on bringing the party together? I mean, I guess there's ah, a lot right of there. angles. Bringing the party to, right there, bringing the party together. Because we, me and Karen really pushed during the state central committee race, you know, unification for them this to then happen the day before. And it's really caused, I feel like, a bigger divide Right. I don't. My my gut tells me that that the Stevens camp did not realize the the longevity of this uh, betrayal and how uh, how much pushback there was going to be about what happened, both uh, within the party within our caucus, but for that matter, amongst uh, the central committee and the county committees across all eighty eight counties, the pushback against the twenty two has been uh, very evident. And I don't believe they understood that going in. Um, I don't believe that you could make the claim that some people would say that the reason, you know, this wasn't about power, it was about uh, ideology and differences in agenda. And they felt that maybe the Marin agenda was more conservative than, than, was, um, that, than we should move towards. And that this more moderate group, the Stevens group that took over, uh, we're doing this to protect us all from ourselves. I think that would be a, a fair statement that some have made to me. Uh, I think in the end, though, you look at this and go, well, you, you may have thought that, but in the end, you may have caused us to lose our potential for a supermajority going to the next cycle because of all the infighting and the fact that there very likely may be 22 people that are primaried in this next cycle. And it is very typical that you're going to defend those seats as a seated member and doing so is going to going to going to take an already cash strapped caucus and make it more so by the fact that you're now trying to defend people that in my opinion are undefensible yeah we've said all along this is about keeping your word and about integrity uh, of office and if you um you know commit to something that you know your caucus should be able to trust that you are committed to doing that. And so how has this affected you kind of going forward? Um, are you are you finding that y'all are working together as a unified body or is this kind of continued to fester as the conversation, you know, continues? And how how have you been moving forward? So I, as, as committees have started to form and different pieces of legislation have started to move through the, pro the process, I think a lot of us are just trying to 
do the best we can and try to 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 work through the process. Um, and I've said this many times. You know, I'm not trying to use my personal opinion or personal feelings uh, and and have that affect how I support or don't support a particular piece of legislation. If I think a piece of legislation is good coming from the 22, then I'm still going to support it. It's not about that. It's about, yes, we have to figure out some of these other issues in terms of bringing our caucus together. And I, quite frankly, don't know that that's going to happen. I really don't. But in terms of, of working for the state, um, I, a, a good example, you know, we've, we have a, a lot of interest in our caucus. And I, the other side says they have interest in this, too. And maybe they do on some type of a backpack bill, something that would allow for transportability of, of dollars so that people have a choice in where their children are educated. And it's not just people that have the means and the money to move their kids to a private school or a charter school or some other uh, form of education. But particularly, I would think this is something that even some of those on the left would support, the idea that if I'm in an inner city school that has a 50 to 60% dropout rate and truancy that's 40 to 50%, and no choice for mobility because we're kind of locked in an urban inner city environment and none of the suburbs around me have open enrollment because they don't want to take on the role of, of working with that group. Uh, what other choice do these folks have? You would think that the that everybody would be for, uh, op for, for a more uh, inclusive form of education and allow people to decide where their child is best educated and how their child is best educated. I, that, that's a bill that is currently moving through committee. Um, you know, there is support on both sides of that bill. I think it will potentially move forward. Probably the big issue right now is, uh, which you may or may not have heard about, because we've just had conversations on that in the last week, but if you've read about Senator Huffman looking to potentially pass uh, their version of House Joint Resolution 1 and bringing it over to the House, or whether we do it first, I'm not sure who's going to get there first, but uh, Speaker Stevens has made it clear that he has no intention of bringing that bill to the floor, uh, whether it comes from the Senate or whether it comes from our side. Uh, he's using the uh, idea that, well, it'd be a waste of money. Well, my comment there is it wouldn't have been if you'd have done your job and put this on the ballot February 1st, but they're looking now at potentially a special election that will cost the state, pay, uh, the, the uh, citizens of Ohio $20 million to have a special election. And that's on them. That's on the 22. This should have been done and handled and had a vote. And it might have been, it might have gone down. It might not have made it. I'm not guaranteeing you that if we had a vote in early January, that it would have been successful. I believe it would have personally, but we should have had that opportunity. And then we wouldn't be having this conversation about a special election. But Jason's saying that, Speaker Stevens is saying, I have no interest in bringing this vote to the floor. And then you go, well, why would that be? And I've got a quote that was in one of the Channel 5 News uh, uh, reports mentions that uh, Minority Leader Russo said that uh, one of the deals was to eliminate this controversial resolution. Well, I thought there weren't any deals. Well, seems to me she thought there was. So I think he's kind of in a very small box. He can't say he supports it. I think the only way it gets to the floor is through what's called a discharge petition where 50 signatures gets, we have 50 signatures sign on to force a bill to the floor. And I think that's the way that if this is gonna happen, we'll have to do it. I think the 45 is all committed to signing that discharge petition, which means we now need to get at least a half a dozen folks from the, from the 22 to join on. Some have said they would already. And I think in the end, that's Jason's uh, 
you know, his his uh, his way out is to tell uh, you know Minority Leader Russo that well, I didn't try to do this. They did it. They, they did it around my back. I couldn't do anything about it. They put a discharge petition up there that I had to call it to the floor for a vote, and he'll vote against it. I'm pretty sure. Uh, again, it is what it is. And that's interesting that you say that because early on I had read an article and I uh, I want to say it was out of like Cleveland.com or something like that or maybe Columbus Dispatch, but it it had said that Russo said, of course, there's, you know, no, nothing in writing here. However, we did discuss, you know, um, the, the abortion issue. We discussed, you know, the uh, fair school funding. We discussed uh, right to work, anti, you know, union thing. Right. So I think that that was all a part of the discussion, whether, you know, there was anything, a memorandum of understanding or anything in writing, you know, we'll never know. But um, I, I feel like certainly it was um, for, I think, Ohioans in the public at large, a slap in the face, um, you know, when when that kind of went down. And and I I feel bad for those that are, you know, trudging forward as we continue to try to kind of heal from this, honestly, because it's just so, um, you know, um, charged. It's such a charged issue. Well, how do you, Karen? How do you move forward? I mean, like, is like, like, Dick, like you said, it, it's a loyalty thing. It's like, how am I to trust you now? How am I to right. trust you? Keep your word. And this is vote? definitely a trust. Everything, everything that's been happening down there of late is all of, you know, well, you know, they said this. Well, yeah, but can we trust? Right now, we're we're working on a policy to share. Uh, leadership of our political caucus's financial arm. And there's no trust there either. And I think what's ultimately going to happen is you're going to have a power sharing system between both groups and nobody's going to put money in it because in the end, uh, nobody trusts either side. What does this do for 2024 for us? Because I know we have a huge Senate race coming up and and I feel like, and I know not to, if you don't want to answer, it's fine. But, you know, I just feel like this is going to, this is going to hurt those races a little bit. Just yeah, I mean, I'm, obviously 2024 uh, is a is a year that will be of concern. I think the other part of this that's of concern is what type of potential retribution uh, the current leadership team uh, with the alliance with the Democrats will use to try to change redistricting that may and somehow affect some of those members that weren't supportive of the 22. That's a concern for our, many of our members. I mean, there's a lot of layers to this that uh, are yet to be written. And so we'll wait and see, you know, how all that shakes out moving forward. But uh, again, as I mentioned, I I am concerned that uh, we very well will lose our supermajority. And I just hope and pray we contain a majority. So uh, at this point, uh, I think that's as about as good as we can ask, but we'll we'll see as time goes forward whether there is a heel to this divide. Or I, I will tell you what: if we if we are unsuccessful and it's decided that we're not going to put this constitutional amendment on the August ballot, which is now the latest potential possibility, and then in November they're able to get the signatures they need to put this abortion language constitutional amendment uh, up, and it's successful. And let's say it's successful by anywhere. Well, if it's successful by anything less than 60 percent, I think what rains down on the 22 will be constant and furious. I agree. No, I agree completely. And I, I think people need to realize this abortion issue, Karen, you've read it um, more so than I have. They, they, It's not just abortion. It's like kids' medical rights, isn't it? 
I mean, there's a, there's a lot to it. And I'm honestly, um, I I was hopeful that the ballot board would not see it as one issue, um, because there's just so much to the language as far as, you know, um, healthcare extending, um, you know, beyond, uh, abortion care, but, you know, it was approved by the ballot board as one issue for the ballot. And, you know, we'll see what's to come. Um, I believe that they may still be reviewing some of that language um, (laughs) because as a medical professional, I think, gosh, there's just so much to this language. Um, And I I didn't feel that it, as a healthcare professional, that it was one issue. So, you know, my hope is that there's still, you know, some wiggle room there for the language to be kind of re-gone over and and really, you know, discussed. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I don't um, I don't know that they're gonna I don't think they can change the language once it's been approved and they started collecting signatures because those signatures are being collected based on that specific language. So any change at this point would be uh you start over. You don't get to you don't get to keep that hundred thousand, half million, you know, whatever number of signatures, you don't get to keep those if you're going to change the language. And as you're probably aware, there is a Supreme Court case uh, that's being brought uh, that is that, that, that main, mentions, as you said, that there's potentially two subject matters here. And therefore, uh, this would have to be broken into multiple or at least two different constitutional amendments. And the concern has been primarily the vague language that gives that potential interpretation that whether that includes, you know, many other issues beyond uh, abortion, which it does based on the broadness of the language, uh, would make it very difficult for parents to have control over the health of their children, especially if it involves reproductive health. And so uh, we'll see moving forward what that means. I mean, that could be another way that if the courts did this quick enough that, well, maybe you don't have a special election in August, because if it if that becomes null and void and the, they can no longer use that language and they have to start over, um, that would change the dynamics to maybe you can put it on in the November election for a constitutional protection amendment. So there's a lot of moving parts and timing issues are very crucial to this whole thing. I don't know whether we, you know, we will have those answers for months, but uh, you're absolutely right. That is an issue that uh, there's there's a lot of concern about and we'll see going forward what what the courts say. And I know you mentioned the budget bill and, you know, we've been looking into the budget bill and, you know, um, education is kind of uh, Katie and I's focus. And, you know, we just didn't realize how much of the budget went to education. It's like 80%. Yeah, a huge part of the budget. Now, now, if you look at the federal dollar pass through, then that changes the numbers and percentages a bit. There's no doubt. Yeah. Uh, but, but a huge portion of funding goes to education. And yet, look at our test scores. Look at the at the success rate of our schools, uh, and, and not all schools. I, I hate to lump you know all schools together. I live in you know Huron County, and certainly many of the rural and the and the areas of Lorraine County that I represent have good schools that that really are not mired in some of this controversy that you see in some of the major yeah. city schools. Uh, but the end line, the, the end goal is that parents should have choice and not feel trapped and not feel that, you know, when you go to a, a, a school board meeting, that they're not listening to you. Well, there's nothing that will make a school board and an administration listen more than to know that those dollars follow the student. 
Those dollars follow the student. All of a sudden, I am way more aware of your power and influence. And therefore, uh, I think not only people worry that, oh, we're going to, you know, take away all our students from our current public school system, but not if they do their job, not if they're doing what the parents want done. And in those schools that that follow the dictates of their families and, and people they represent, they'll be just fine. And if you don't, you deserve what you get. Absolutely. And it adds a capitalistic approach to the schools, I feel like. Like it 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 basically makes the schools kind of work for for the parents instead of the other way around. Like I feel like it's been and I just read the backpack bill. I love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I mean I love the backpack bill. I just read it. Um I wouldn't change much in it. And I really think it's great and, it, and it's really gonna make the schools competitive. Right. No, it is. I, I think again, I think that's a bill that we're gonna work very diligently to pass some form of, you know, it may have to be a phase in, it's got a fairly hefty potential price tag over a billion dollars. If everybody were, were to use it, that won't happen. There'll be, you know, in, in the first few years, first of all, there isn't even alternative schooling available out there. So and if the need arises and if the, the public schools don't perform in a way that, that parents feel their voices are being heard, then yes, you may see an exodus from some school systems, but it's going to take years. It's going to be gradual because there's no place for most of these students to go. Those 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 alternate institutions do not currently exist. No. And so hopefully it's more the, the former, the idea that they'll start listening to parents more carefully and provide curriculum that meets the needs of the families in their communities. And how do you feel about the Parents' Bill of Rights education that was just introduced? So I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with it vaguely, but I don't, so just so you're aware, as you mentioned in the onset, I don't sit on any of the education committees. I yeah. did my first term. So I'm you know familiar with the broad stroke language of it, uh, but I don't have uh, enough nuance. Is that Adam Bird's bill? Yeah, I helped DJ with it last uh, summer. I gave him some uh, right. uh, legislation from Virginia, Florida and stuff. And I just okay. think we need something because, there's nowhere I can point to that says, except the 14th Amendment, that this is right. this is well, my and, and again, I trust, you know, uh, Rep Bird was a past superintendent, uh, yeah. is a conservative individual who I trust immensely. We've had multiple conversations on education policy. I know he and, and uh, Senator Reinecke have been going back and forth on differences in their bills on how we reform the State Board of Education. There is no doubt the current State Board of Education is broken and needs to be revamped. The question is, how do you do it? A lot of folks uh, in the uh, lame duck session had some concern over giving that authority to our governor by allowing him to appoint the school superintendent. I agree but at the with same that. Time, but yeah. at the same time, we took away so much of their authority that it didn't, it did, it wasn't near as impactful yeah. as it is under its current form. So it was, it was a yin and yang there. I'm not sure what the, you know, the, the correct solution is i mean whether you want all elected board with r's and d's behind so you know who they are and where they're what they stand for uh i'm certainly open to change and want change and willing to work with with both sides to try and come up with a solution that uh you know makes our state school board at least more effective or at least not do any harm exactly what are your uh, we just want to end this and what are your uh personal top priority bills this session so, as I mentioned earlier, I've been involved with public utilities, the energy sector since my first term. 
I've been a very, very much of an advocate, pro-advocate for advanced nuclear. I believe that if our goal is to have a sustainable future uh, that is a greener future, that without nuclear, it's really impossible to accomplish. And so in the first three terms, I promoted a bill called Anthem, Advanced Nuclear Technology, Helping Energize Mankind. It passed the House each of those cycles, uh, made it to a third hearing, I believe, in the Senate, but that was during Lane Duck, and we weren't quite able to get that across the finish line. Uh, my focus has changed a little bit this General Assembly since, as I mentioned, I currently chair public utilities. Uh, in several of our informational sessions that we've held to date, um, the issue has been more about resiliency and making sure we can keep the lights on. As many of you may be aware of, the day before Christmas Eve day, the 23rd and on the 24th, uh, PJM, who's our regional authority, trans regional transmission authority, uh, sent a notice to all of our state uh, utilities asking them to send notice to their customers to shed load because they were concerned they if we didn't shed load that we would have to start doing rolling blackouts on Christmas Eve day or the day before. Now, if you recall, that was when we had that extremely strong winds, 30, 40, 50 mile an hour winds down to zero outside. So it was very cold, unseasonably so. And uh, so we've We've since had hearings related to that. And while uh, I don't believe, I think that was an anomaly that isn't necessarily tied to uh, you know, solar and wind and intermittent power generating sources. In our conversations with PJM, it was mentioned that by 2027, 2028, as we continue to shed coal and to a certain extent, even certain amounts of natural gas generation in the uh, chase for a green, greener environment that ultimately we are going to run out of having enough power to provide reliability for 24-7. And part of that isn't even related to Ohio's agenda. Uh, a simple thing I'll share with you, Illinois intends by 2030 to eliminate all thermal generation in their state. Now, PJM, the regional manager of our grid, of which Illinois is part of, uh, said, hold on, wait a minute, if you're going to do that, you're still going to need power from thermal generators, even if your state sets a policy to ban all or close all thermal generation, we're going to have to create, create more transmission and distribution infrastructure to make sure we can feed you the power you need, because you're still going to need that power when you don't have sunlight or wind uh, to power your economy. And so then Ohio looks at that and goes, whoa, Who's going to pay for that transmission and distribution chain to make sure that Illinois can have power? And isn't that their problem? And if that's the policy they want to pursue, so be it. But I don't see why the ratepayers of Ohio should pay more for transmission because of a decision Illinois made. So it's becoming more and more important for us as a region to have some kind of say uh, in, in how we uh, decide to move towards a greener economy. Ohio has six to 8,000 megawatts of renewable solar that looks to come online in the next half a dozen years, but that's all variable load. You get no electricity in the middle of the night. And wind in Ohio is probably not gonna be that viable because of the pushback from the local communities against it. And yeah. so what is the solution to making sure we keep the lights on 24 seven? And that's one of my primary goals. We don't have a specific piece of legislation, but we are meeting with stakeholders currently 
and trying to figure out what would be a pathway to do two things. One is to make sure we keep the thermal generation Ohio has, like our nuclear power plants, like our existing coal and, and uh, natural gas generation. But more importantly, Ohio is a net importer. About a third of our energy comes from out of the state of Ohio. And as we grow with companies like Intel and all of these data centers and the battery plant in Fayette County and so on that are gonna be huge users of energy, how do we encourage Ohio to be and to, to allow these investors to come here and build their power plants where you don't need to transmit it across multiple states to use it in the state of Ohio? So we want to be a net, net exporter of energy, yes. not a net importer. And so how do we do that in a, deregul a deregulated state where we no longer have a, a, a vertical integration of our distribution and energy generation like we had prior to 20, uh, 2000. But how do we how do we modify that or change that in a way that allows for uh, development of advanced nuclear, of you know, natural gas generation? How do we do that in a climate that you have a federal government that wants to ban all fossil fuels? And how do I create uh, interest in building a billion dollar natural gas plant in Ohio, knowing that the federal government could drop the hammer at any time in the future and say, we're going to ban you or change regulations to make your emissions policy so onerous that you're going to shut down of your own free will. I, we've got to figure all this out. Yeah. And also aging infrastructure that we have to update and, and, and go on. Sure. So, good. Sure. so those, are, like those are primary, primarily the areas that I'm involved with is, is, you know, grid infrastructure. You know, how do we bring advanced new infrastructure to these areas of commercial development. It's the kind of the chicken and egg uh, idea that, you know, if you build it prematurely and you charge that to our ratepayers, then our ratepayers are paying for that uh, infrastructure for a new economic development zone uh, prematurely. But at the same time, if you don't have it shovel ready, those companies may go to other states where mm -hmm. uh, they have more shovel ready developed lands. And so it's, it's, you know, developing fair policies that help the ratepayers get the best value in their electric generation and distribution possible, while at the same time allowing Ohio to grow as a, uh, you know, industrial complex is, is part of figuring out what that balance looks like. I think it's also teaching voters what uh, efficiency means and green energy means. Uh, like I told you, I was in the background of green energy as well, doing home energy audits and insulation for... Mm -hmm almost for the energy companies and people don't realize how efficient we are um, in producing energy ourselves, but also the importance of nuclear in the future. So I love that. you. Sure. sure. So, so yeah, those are some of the areas that I'm primarily involved with at the moment. And so uh, I appreciate you asking. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dick. We certainly appreciate your time and your candid responses. Um, we look forward to all of your, um, you know, stuff going forward and in any way that we uh, can help you get that information out. We would love to do that. We appreciate you being here. Appreciate the conversation. You guys have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Mean Street News today. If you would like to support our work, please go to www.meanstreetoh.com to donate. Your generous contribution will help fund our mission. Be sure to tune in next time on Mean Street News, where we mean what we say and we say what we mean. Stay focused, Ohio.